We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, guys. What's up? Kevin Jones, founder of Blue Wire. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Do me a favor. Send it to one of your friends. We're growing this network grassroots style. It takes everyone. You're a part of our team if you send this to one of your friends. All right. Enjoy this podcast and appreciate your support. Hello and welcome to the Eurostep episode 18. The Bucks moving on to the second round edition. And not only is this the first Bucks moving on to the second round edition of the Eurostep, I don't even think podcasts were around when the last time the Bucks uh, made the made the second round. So this is a this is a landmark occasion. And I'm Kane Pittman. I'm joined by Ty Windish and Ty. They finally did it. They finally did it. 18 years later. Wow. I the the podcast not existing line. I'd never thought about that. That that kind of tripped me out a little bit. Usually, I feel like I have something pretty cohesive to say here. I throw it back. We get into our first topic, but the pure like uh, perspective I, I now have on how long it's really been is is kind of tripping me out. So, yeah, it's uh, good for the Bucks handling the Pistons here and doing something they hadn't done in eighteen long years. Yeah, I didn't plan that one. That just came to me at the last second, and, I, and I'm like, you know what? I'm like, I'm just gonna roll with this. I'm like, this is a this is, <laughs> this is a first. This is a first for the Euro step. But yeah, I mean, as I said. This is a big deal, and I think uh, sometimes when you think back to how long it has been, and like 2001 was a long, long time ago. I was 10 years old. Uh, I think you were even you were younger than that, right? So yeah, I was six. Right. So I mean that. I mean it's just ridiculous, and that was I've spoke about it before, but the first uh, Bucks games I ever watched were in that playoff series, and I barely remember that. I could I I don't I you know. I remember watching the games and not really understanding what was happening, but re- as I've said before, just uh, you know, sort of getting sucked in by the Bucks and the crowd at the Bradley Center and all that sort of thing. But it's uh, it's been a long, long time, and I think something that people have overlooked is that not only is it the first time since two thousand one, 
But when they won that series in 2001 and went on that run to the Eastern Conference Finals, that was the first time they've done that since 1989. So that was a, a drought-breaking uh, playoff run as well. So this is the second time in 30 years Ooh. that the Bucks are through to the second round. And uh, the second time in our lifetime, the second time in a lot of Bucks uh, fans' lifetime. But I think, you know, when, when I think about that, I think about the fans that have been around for even longer and, and did see those teams in the 80s and were used to seeing competitive Bucks teams and teams that could contend and make a real run. So uh, I think for those people, last night had to be uh, a pretty special moment. But uh, we spoke about it on the last pod, how it seemed or felt a little, I don't know, kind of strange how easy this was going to happen and the fact that we always thought that it was going to be this huge struggle and, uh, you know, maybe at five serve a game going down to the wire and game, you know, whatever it is, six or it would have been six this year or, or seven, whatever it is at, at five serve and this huge, uh, you know, emotional win and, and, you know, uh, confetti, but no, it just happened the way this entire series has happened with the Bucks beating down the Pistons on the road, little fanfare from the team, although they acknowledge that this was a big moment, but the Bucks just did what they did all series. They win 127, 104, they sweep the four-game series by an average of 23.7 points. They beat the Pistons 8 to zip over the entire season by an average of over 19 points per game. So it was comprehensive domination of the Pistons once again. Yeah, it's hard to argue with that. I mean, I guess just quickly, so props to Detroit, where I think it would have been really easy for that team to come out and just sort of go through the motions a little bit, get this thing over with. I mean, I, I think no NBA team's ever come back from 3-0, and if one does, it'll probably be some sort of injury circumstance, something like that. I mean, the Bucks getting healthier, not the opposite as the series goes on and everything else, and they fought. And, you know, another first-half lead for Detroit, I think, buoyed by some unrealistic shooting. The Pistons as a team end up shooting 32% from three, but – Really, the only two good shooting performances were Blake Griffin, four for six. That's unseasonably good for anyone. And Reggie Jackson, five for nine. He's not exactly a super precise three-point shooter either. But those two guys really came through. I thought early Andre Drummond played a lot better. He kind of regressed as the game went on, it seemed like. But these Pistons came out with a lot of energy, and they fought, and they made Milwaukee earn this. And I'm almost glad about that. You know, even as Detroit had this lead, all along, I don't know about you, but I was always kind of like, yeah, I think the Bucs are just going to come back and take it. We've seen a couple times in the series now, Mike Budenholzer will talk to this team and get them ready to go, get them playing the Milwaukee Bucks basketball we're used to, and then things kind of just change, and that's what happened in this game as well. But, you know, uh, it felt a little more earned than I, than I expected it would after game three. I thought the way Blake played and the way Giannis played, uh, Blake being so good, Giannis being so for his standards, bad. I didn't think those things would happen again. I thought it'd be an easier time. I mean, it's still a, what, like 20, 24, 23 point win. It's not exactly a close game at the end, but, you know, Detroit made it a little more interesting, and I'm, I'm kind of glad for that. Yeah, I think from game two onwards to game two, three, or four, uh, Detroit were really competitive in the first half, and they showed that they, you know, they were ready to compete and they were ready to play hard. Uh, I think in the end, when you look at most uh, 1v8 matchups, the difference is that you can't sustain that for four quarters. And we saw that over game two, three, and four. So last night, it felt inevitable. You were just waiting for that time where 
and you sort of touched on it, the uh, Pistons were hitting threes. So, uh, Blake, there was a stretch there where he hit two in a row and I just sort of sandwiched around a Reggie Jackson three uh, and the Bucks were just walking to the foul line down the other end. So, uh, it, you just felt as soon as the Pistons stopped hitting shots and at that point they were up around 50% from three, once they started to have a few empty possessions, the game really went from being uh, from the Pistons having the lead to the Bucks being up double digits in the space of uh, was under four minutes towards the end of the end of the third quarter. And by that point, once you're able to break the back of this Pistons team, you knew that with the series the way it was, uh, obviously the foul trouble they were in, and Blake Griffin fouled out early-ish in the fourth quarter. Uh, it was really just let's get through this game, let's have no injuries, and make sure uh, that we're moving on uh, with a, a healthy roster. And that's what we ended up seeing. Uh, I think that the uh, the I mean the takeaway is, and, and we need to talk about him because you sort of touched on it that Giannis, um, by his ridiculous standards, uh, appeared like he wasn't as dominant as what he's been during the season. I think we should definitely note that uh, he's thirty one minutes or thirty two minutes uh, on the on the ESPN box or thirty two uh, that that was the season uh, the the series high for Giannis. So the first time he's got over 30 minutes. So you have to take his stats into context. And I I tweeted some numbers out this morning. Uh, He averaged 28.3 minutes per game in this series, which in itself is ridiculous. We've been talking about the playoffs and the way that Bud was going to be able to play these guys more. Uh, He didn't have to do that in this series. They were able to cruise through, get plenty of rest. But per 36, which again, and we're going to move on to what's next later on in the pod, 36 minutes is around where you expect Giannis to play in the playoffs. Perth 36 in a bad series for Giannis. He averaged 33 points, 15 rebounds, five assists, and two blocks. So uh, that's where we're at with Giannis right now. You can say that he had a not dominant series or a down series by his standards, but the stats certainly disagree with that. Yeah, and just to add on another bit of context, basketball reference tweeted this today. Giannis played 32 minutes and scored 41 points. That's the fewest minutes played in a 40-point playoff game in our database. That's according to Basketball References Twitter account, and they have a linked table there. So, yeah, pretty pretty good stuff from Giannis, especially this game. I mean, this was really the – it felt like after the last game and a, a bit of a slow start for him, he said, you know what, I'm going to impose my will and, and these Pistons can't stop me. And, you know, a lot of free throws, he got to the line 20 times. He started off shaky from the line, ended up really cleaning that up, which was nice to see. But – you know, it's easy to say, you know, the MVP, getting the whistle, whatever else. But, I mean, he earns, I would say, almost all of that contact. And I'm sure on many other plays where he doesn't get to the line, he probably does get hacked too. So I don't I don't think that's as much of, you know, just all the calls going the Bucks' way as much as it is this guy is unstoppable. And if you try and you don't, you don't come correct, you're going to foul him. And that's just the way it is when you play against Giannis. Yeah, and I, I tweeted something out in during the third quarter when the both the Pistons players, the Pistons coach, obviously Dwayne Casey picked up uh, the technical foul that really, after that point, I mean, the Bucks just absolutely obliterated the Pistons after Dwayne Casey picked up that tech. But uh, I, I tweeted about it. I thought I was watching that game, and I understand that the free throw differential was was crazy. The Bucks uh, went had 41 free throws, the Pistons only 12. Like I understand that. But when you're watching the way that the Pistons were running offense, they weren't putting pressure on the Bucks in the paint. They were passing the ball around the perimeter and taking mid-range jump shots and three-point shots. They weren't even putting the Bucks in positions where the Bucks could foul them. If you look down the other end, 
Milwaukee were relentlessly attacking the Pistons. And to be honest, I thought that the Pistons were defending at like a frustrated team and they were being like reckless with their hands. And I, I don't, I, I get it. When Giannis is coming downhill, there's, it's easy to say they were being uh, sort of reckless with their hands. Uh, that might not be the case. It's just simply, I don't know what you do with Giannis when he's coming that hard at you. But I didn't see too many fouls where I was like, wow, that's, that's, that's a lucky call. Almost every single one of the calls, I was like, well, yeah, it's a foul. I, I don't know what else to say. I'm, I, you know, I, and and this is, and I always feel as far as the officiating, I'm able to be fairly objective about it. I can call it, I can call it a bad call for the Bucks the way I can call a bad call for the opposition. And I didn't, I just didn't see that last night. So while I understand that uh, it's frustrating for the opposition to see Giannis walking to the foul line and having twenty free throws. They weren't cheap fouls at all by any stretch. I mean, he was on the floor. He was getting sent to the floor. And Giannis isn't a flopper. That's one thing that we know. If he goes to the floor, he's generally been sent there by, by the opposition. So Giannis earned every single one of those free throws. The Bucks sensed that the Pistons were in early foul trouble and really put the foot down. And uh, I think that that was exactly what they needed to do at halftime. When you looked at the foul trouble for the Pistons, they took advantage of that and in the end just wore down Detroit and they, they could not. They just didn't want to be out there anymore at the end with, with these Bucks players uh, penetrating so aggressively. Yeah, 100% agree. And, I mean, for some of them like Blake, they didn't get the option to be out there anymore because of the foul trouble. Um, right. One, two quick things to point out that I liked about this game. Uh, I mentioned already that Blake and Reggie Jackson shot really well. You kind of just live with that. I mean, those are initiators. You know, they're going to have some chances when they're open and, and they're going to shoot instead of driving, and that's kind of just just what happens and, and that they were unseasonably warm. But I really like that Wayne Ellington and Luke Kennard, probably the Pistons' best two sort of spot-up shooters, held to a combined two for six from three-point range in 61 minutes or so together combined on the floor. You know, that's really good. I mean, there's teams out there in the postseason that the way the Bucks play, you know, protect the paint, everything else, there's going to be some shooters that try to orbit around and get open. And I think it's pretty common knowledge at this point. The best way to, you know, defend the three-point line is is to not even let those shots get up. And letting those two guys in, in a healthy amount of minutes for both of them only shoot three times each and, and both go one for three is good for Milwaukee. The other thing I thought worth noting is every single rotation player for the Bucks has a plus, plus, minus at the end of the day. Uh, the five starters, Nico, Ursan, George Hill, and Pat C., and that's just, it's kind of unusual, especially in a game where Detroit had built up a, a, a good lead in the second half, hold the lead at halftime. For not one of these guys to be a minus really speaks to the fact that the entire team surged in the second half, not just one or two lineups. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and just to touch on the uh, just to touch on the Luke Kennard point, it was interesting because I was having some discussions pregame with the people I was with about Kennard being moving from the starting lineup, and it was a curious decision because really, I know Blake played really well in Game Three, but uh, Kennard was the Pistons' best player overall through the series over the course of four games, considering he played all those games. So uh, the only thing that I could really come up with is the fact that uh, Luke Kennard in Game Three only had one three-point attempt. That came in the fourth quarter. And considering how well he was shooting the ball, that was a really, really curious stat. So the only thing I was thinking is that they wanted to separate his minutes from Blake Griffin and perhaps, you know, when, when Griffin was sitting, get him some more spot-up looks or more jump shots. For him to only take three uh, three-point attempts, just a really, really strange situation. I, I, I'm not sure what happened after game two with Luke Kennard, but uh, it, was, it was interesting to see how uh, they... 
really went away from getting him the ball. I, I don't know why uh, that was the case. And as you said, some credit has to go to the Bucks for that. But I don't think that they put Kennard in, in enough uh, situations to get the ball in his hands and, and try and get some shots up. So that was that was strange. But you touched on the plus minus, and, and obviously the one that stands out to me again, George Hill. Uh, this guy just keeps going from strength to strength. And in a game where the Bucks were losing for a, a major part of the contest, George Hill only plays 19 minutes. He finishes a plus 29. So, uh, uh, gee, I mean, he just keeps getting go, or keeps going from strength to strength over the last few weeks. This is a guy that now, once we move into the Celtics series, he's going to be such a key contributor off the bench. This is even with uh, the pending return of Malcolm Brogdon. I think we can expect to see George Hill play uh, in big moments and big minutes moving forward. A hundred percent. And, you know, we've we've taken a lot of time here to shout out Sterling Brown. He had another just really strong overall performance, I thought. I mean, yeah. nine points, but the guy hauls in 13 rebounds and 13 dishes rebounds. six assists. I mean, I, I don't think many people would bet that Sterling Brown would lead the Bucks in rebounds and assists in the same playoff game, but he did. Uh, great performance for him. But, you know, also in filling the Malcolm Brogdon void, I mean, George Hill doing some the, the reserve point guard duties that, you know, Brogdon, although not nominally a point guard anymore, playing shooting guard now, obviously he's going to handle the ball a bit with some units. And just having another player you can trust to put the ball in their hands to create and flow within the Bucks offense, it's just really valuable. And, and, you know, you said it best. I mean, he's going from strong performance to strong performance recently. Yeah, and this is uh, why you, you mentioned Sterling. I, I had someone uh, tweet about Malcolm Brogdon today and asked me whether I thought he would start. And I, I did sort of say that we'd probably touch on this. So uh, we may as well move ahead. We, the Bucks, they're done with the Pistons. Now all the focus turns to the Boston Celtics, who swept uh, the Indiana Pacers for nothing themselves. They wrapped up their series actually incredibly before before the Bucks did. That has a lot to do with the scheduling, but uh, they weren't quite as dominant as the Bucks. But they beat the uh, the Pacers for nothing, and now we get a rematch from last year's first round. So uh, for the Bucks, it, it looks like and and there was some reports yesterday. I wasn't at the game yesterday in Detroit, but the, the news from shoot around is that Malcolm Brogdon. Uh, Mark Budenholzer said that he's going to have an update on Malcolm Brogdon in uh, yesterday. So yesterday he said three to five days. So now we're looking at in the next two or three days by the time uh, the listeners get to this podcast, we're going to have some sort of update on Malcolm Brogdon. Uh, as I said in the last podcast, we've seen Malcolm at practice now last week. He was running full court, uh, you know, back and forth, shooting some jump shots off the dribble, moving really well and looking really comfortable. So uh, we'll see whether he's ready to go for game one, but... My feeling is, after missing such a length of time with a, a foot injury, I don't think that the Bucks are going to throw him directly back into the starting lineup. And uh, I think part of that is to allow Malcolm to ease his way back into the game, particularly at such a high-intensity uh, playoff series that this is going to be with Boston. And you already touched on the other reason why this is, this is going to be manageable is because Sterling Brown has proven himself to be a consistent contributor and someone someone that the Bucks can trust out on the floor, uh, not only to start the game but in the fourth quarter. So this is really a great situation for the Bucks to be in, where Malcolm can play probably under a minute's restriction, uh, get his legs back, and and just feel comfortable and knowing that the Bucks aren't screaming for him right now. Yeah, I mean. You know, we've we've touched on this a lot, but the Bucks are so deep, you have that luxury of not needing 
so much Malcolm Brogdon. I mean, if Brogdon comes back and plays, I don't know, 15 minutes, like let's say you take some of that from Pat Connaughton. I mean, you know, Pat Connaughton can still play minutes. You can give the rest of his minutes to George Hill if you, if you want to do that. I mean, there's a lot of options at the guard spots right now. And like this last game, again, was an example of Milwaukee not needing to play guys a ton against the Pistons. So George Hill plays 20 and Pat C plays 26. But Eric Bledsoe and Sterling Brown only played 28 and 27, respectively. So, I mean, you can take away a lot of those Connaughton minutes if you'd rather have some of the other guards play more. And, you know, I, I think Pat C's played really well. I think we both agree that you'd rather see more of Eric Bledsoe, Sterling Brown, George Hill, and Malcolm Brogdon when he's healthy. But you take 26 minutes and divide it three ways between Bledsoe, Brown, and George Hill, and the most minutes and any of the three of those would be, I mean, I'm not great at math per se, but I think that'd be about 37 for Bledsoe, which is kind of a lot, but you could give a couple extra to George Hill. He'd be around 30. And then you can take however many you want from those three guys and give them to Brogdon then. So a lot of options for Bud, or you can, you know, keep playing Patsy some minutes and, and lighten the load for everyone else. It'll, it's just nice to not, you know, say, Oh, if we don't play, you know, uh, Brogdon, we need him to play heavy minutes. Otherwise we have to go to, I mean, no disrespect to him, but, Tim Frazier for big minutes. Like, no, you don't. He's literally the last guard you'd have to play in the lo- in the in the roster. That's nice. I mean, it's just a very convenient thing. I mean, obviously, we all want Malcolm Brogdon to come back and do Malcolm Brogdon stuff, but being able to bring him back more at his own pace is crucial. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I think that this is going to be a good thing for Malcolm. I think this is going to be a good thing uh, for the team, and it, it's just again a, a indication of how far this team has come from twelve months ago, where. Uh, you know, you you lose a guy like Brogdon last year, um, and we know that he was. And the other thing is, the point is uh, of all this, we know that Brogdon missed such a long period before the playoffs last year, and was sort of thrown right back into the mix because, as I was just uh, getting to, the Bucks could not afford to to not start Malcolm Brogdon or to ease him back into it. He had to be right into the mix and be a real rotation player. So. Uh, this is just the again a sign of the times and a, a sign of the difference from twelve months ago. But when we speak to the difference of twelve months ago, and we've sort of been through this, we talk about Eric Bledsoe, and this this guy is going to be such a uh, crucial player for Milwaukee coming into this series. And I just there was something last night that I think is interesting and it's going to be interesting to watch because the Bucks know uh, or Bucks fans know how how uh, efficient. And how dominant Eric Bledsoe can be when he's aggressive, offensively getting into the paint and getting to the basket. Last night, the Bucks went into halftime. Uh, in, so in game four against the Pistons, uh, the Bucks went into halftime trailing. And when you looked at the block uh, box score, Eric Bledsoe only had two field goal attempts. No free throws, just two shots. So, uh, you know, this was a point that I made to the people I was watching the games with. I said, this, this, is, this is not acceptable for Bledsoe. And we know, first of all, we know that the Bucks' offense, uh, and we've, we've talked about this a lot, is equal opportunity. Uh, they don't necessarily look for one person to be aggressive all the time. They got, these guys just take shots as they come in the flow of the offense. Giannis is really the only guy that's, that uh, breaks that mold. But Bledsoe needs to be taking more than two shots in, in, in the first half of basketball. And... Uh, he needs to be getting into the paint and he needs to be putting pressure on the opposition defense. So uh, he ends up in the second half. He takes 10 shots in the second half, uh, finishes the game with 16 points. 
And we saw a lot more of, of the Eric Bledsoe that we are going to need to see in this series against Boston because he was aggressive out of halftime, got going, got going early, had an and one, got to the free throw line, and then he seemed to sort of get going on, on uh, you know, an offense a little bit. And remember, Reggie Jackson had 20 points at halftime down the other end as well. So it wasn't the best first half for Bledsoe, but uh, we've seen him be able to bounce back and the Bucks win was a really good sign. But uh, against the the Celtics, and obviously he's going to be up against Kyrie for the majority of the time. They need him to be aggressive all the time because it's going to be hard to slow down Kyrie, and we know how good Bledsoe's been against these elite uh, point guards. But the Bucks also are really going to need him to put pressure on Irving down the other end and get into the paint, get to the free throw line, uh, and and be looking to score points. No, I, I agree entirely, I think. You know, the thing about Kyrie Irving is we all know how great he is offensively, but he doesn't – he's not that guy on the defensive end. He's not awful, I wouldn't say. He's not terrible. He's not the worst defensive point guard in the league. But he's a guy who, if you're Eric Bledsoe, you should be able to get buckets back on him. You're probably not going to keep up with Kyrie Irving and one-on-one scoring. I mean, guy's one of the best scorers probably of all time. He's got one of the most iconic shots in finals history. You know, he's got the track record. He's got the resume, everything else. But – that doesn't mean you can't get some buckets back on him and sort of negate his influence. And, you know, even against a team in the Pacers, who I didn't think were exceptionally good, uh, especially in the playoffs without Victor Oladipo. So the Celtics outscore the Pacers by seven points per 100 possessions with Kyrie on. That's their net rating is plus seven. With Kyrie off, they were plus 8.6 against the Pacers. So, you know, there are guys, and we'll get into it, who are the bellwether for this Celtics team and who really... I think, determine how good they're going to be on a given night. Kyrie is going to get buckets, but he's going to give some up. And I think, you know, he he might have a performance where he just absolutely takes one game, but I don't think he's going to be the most important guy who determines this series for Boston. Yeah, I I think I know who you're thinking of. And and, again, this this is a big thing. And it's it's sort of, again, touches to your point. Uh, You need to, if you're the Bucs on the defensive end, so for the Celtics, the defensive end, that is. You want to be putting pressure on Kyrie Irving, and you don't want to let him off the hook. So we've seen this at times with, with Bledsoe where he, he will really turn it on and he will take over a game offensively, but there is also stretches and, and halves in games where he's just sort of floating around, just a, just a, a part of the offense, but not really uh, you know, taking the bull by the horns. And that's something that Milwaukee's going to really want in this series. Again, I, I know that they share the ball around and they don't really have problems putting up points. They still had 56 points in the first half. So it's not like uh, Bledsoe not being aggressive hurt the Bucks' offense in terms of putting up points. But there's a lot more to it when you play a team like the Celtics and the Bucks need the, the absolute aggressive version of Eric Bledsoe. But uh, I think you know we want to move on to Al Horford a little bit here. And, and uh, this, is, this is a guy that I don't think you can say he's underrated anymore. Uh, I think that sort of went out the window. I think last season when when... Uh, you know, everyone saw what he did in the postseason, but I don't know if you want to uh, kick us off with some thoughts on Al Horford. But there's there's no question this guy is this guy is a key to this series. Yeah, he's a key to every series for the Celtics. In the regular season, he was a big time indicator of how they were, and in the playoffs, that's carried over. The Celtics with Horford on were plus fifteen point nine against the Pacers. That's their best mark with any one player on the court. They dominated Indiana when he was there. And you'd think a sweep, you know, without any one player, they're not going to be that bad. Not the case. Again, 
the the most important contributor, uh, at least in those four games, at least according to net rating plus minus, without Al Horford in those four games, there were 54 minutes they played without him on the court. They were minus 16.6 per 100 possessions. They got absolutely just destroyed without Horford out there. And, you know, the Bucks go 2-1 and one against the Celtics during the regular season, but in the 28 minute, or the 44 minutes that Al Horford and Brooke Lopez share the floor, the Celtics outscore Milwaukee by 28. And that's going to be, the I think, I don't know if those two players necessarily, I just think however the Bucks handle Horford on both ends is really going to determine how this series goes. I mean, I think there's a chance that even at even at their best, you know, the Celtics, the Bucks can still win because they're that good. But I think right now, Coach Bud and, and his staff, the number one thing they should be looking at is how can we handle Horford offensively? You know, how do we attack him? He's probably going to start off at least guarding Giannis. That's what the Celtics tend to do, and he's pretty good at it. And on the other end, you know, Brooke Lopez likes to drop off hard. I mean, you can give up a lot of three-pointers to Al Horford, who's a you don't want to do that, I should say. That that can happen quickly if you drop off of him. You don't really want to do that because he can make those threes. So this is going to be a lot different than matching up with Andre Drummond in a whole lot of ways. Yeah, that's for sure. And the one thing that we know is that the Brad Stevens, obviously an excellent coach. He's seen a lot of Milwaukee uh, this season, obviously last season as well. It's, it's, it's a complete uh, different scenario. It's, these are some numbers for, for Al Horford that you're really going to understand how much the Celtics are going to play through Al Horford. So in the three games this year, and the Bucks have uh, won that series 2-1, to one, but all three games were very, very, very close. So Al Horford missed uh, one of those games, but just some, uh, just some numbers for Al Horford. So on, on the entire season, his average usage percentage was 19, has, has been 19.1%. This is in the regular season. Against the Bucks, that jumps up to 26.1. His average, he only averaged 4.2 assists per game for the season. Against the Bucks, that goes up to 6.5 uh, assists. Field goal attempts, he was averaging 18 field goal attempts against the Bucks on the season, only 10. So they're going to go through Al Horford. They're going to put the ball in his hands. He's going to, in the, certainly in pick-and-pop scenarios, they're going to want Al Horford to be initiating a lot of their stuff, even with Kyrie Irving, who had some decent games. So Kyrie Irving scored 28 points, uh, 15. That was the one that the, the Bucks won pretty comfortably on the road in Boston. He only had 15, and he had 22 in the second game against uh, Milwaukee right after the All-Star break. So Kyrie Irving hasn't really got off the chain against the Bucks, but Al Horford is the guy. They're going to run everything through, and they're going to put a lot of pressure on the Bucks uh, to... Well, really, they're gonna, the Bucks are going to have to decide if they want to keep playing their usual scheme in the pick and roll, or if Horford starts to, to cut them up a little bit, uh, then they may want to uh, change and do some more switching on defense. We're going to see, but... I think the other important thing, when I, when I was talking about those 18 field goal attempts for Al Horford uh, across those two games, he only shot 14 for 36 from the field. Uh, from three, he shot six for 17. So he was getting up those shots. And part of me wonders whether the Bucks are going to be okay with Al Horford firing away from three during the game. Even in the, in the game one, the Bucks first lost the regular season. Al Horford went four for 11 from three. And I part of me, a big part of me thinks... If you're Mark Budenholzer and Al Horford wants to shoot over 10 attempts from three, you probably let him do that. I'm not sure. Um, 
It's going to be, I think we probably won't see it a lot, but if the Celtics go with Baines Horford, that makes things a lot easier because then you can just stick Brooke Lopez on, on Aaron Baines, who the Bucks have had great success against Baines this season. Horford has too. You know, the problem with this is it's hard to hide Lopez if you wanted to put someone else, you know, a guy like maybe DJ or one of the other slightly more athletic uh, bigs on Horford and then try to keep Lopez down in the paint. There's just not really anywhere to hide him. Most of the guys on this team are capable shooters. You don't want to leave them open. I don't know. I'm a little worried that they could get going if you give Horford too much space. But, you know, it is – it is the good teams should dictate how the game goes. The Bucks, you know, as the, the reigning best team in the league in the regular season, hasn't taken a loss in the playoffs yet. There's some merit to just saying we're going to play the way we play and we're going to see how it goes. But – I do think that even if they start that way, I think there's going to be some tricks up the sleeve for Horford if he ends up nailing those three-pointers. Yeah, I, I, I've always seen it a little bit during the season that the Bucks are going to be willing to switch, and that doesn't necessarily mean that Lopez has to be off the floor. Clearly, if you're running a Curry Irving, Al Horford pick and roll, then uh, leaving leaving uh, Lopez on that island against Curry Irving is not ideal. But uh, again, I, I just feel that the Bucks are – We've seen this all year. They're happy to pick and choose with players how they want to run that defense, and I'm I'm not I'm not hundred percent convinced uh, that the Bucks aren't going to be okay with Horford, uh, you know, with that that huge uh, usage rate and taking all those field goal attempts. Because again, I understand Horford is capable from three. He can, he can make that shot. So it's not it's not that he's not a threat out there, but I, I just think at some point when you come up against these teams, you need to pick. Uh, you know who you want with the ball in their hands, and uh, if the if the Celtics are really willing to run that much stuff through Al Horford, then the bonus of that is it's not in Kyrie Irving's hands. So uh, I just you know again the Celtics are a really really good team, and from here on out the Bucks are only playing good teams. So you're going to have to make these decisions. So uh, it is going to be interesting to see how it plays, but we should really expect that from what we've seen uh, from the Celtics that Al Horford is going to be a, a real focal point for them. So one question I want to pose to you is if the Celtics end up having a good amount of success with Horford at center against Lopez, how much do the Bucks overall lose if they decide to play small and then have either Giannis, Nico, or Ersan at the five and, and not play Brooke as much, especially when Horford's out there? Is that is that a decisive blow against the Bucks, or do you think that they can kind of just keep on chugging and, and sort of move pieces around as needed? So if, and this is in my opinion, if, if Lopez is played off the floor, which I don't, I, I don't believe that that's going to happen, but if Lopez is played off the floor, then that is a real blow for the Bucks because not only does Lopez change the, the Bucks' uh, offense, and we've seen that, and I know you can replace him with another shooter like Miritich, but uh, the Lopez effect has been so real all season but defensively, the Bucks lose a lot in the paint. If, if you don't have Lopez in there, because part of the reason why they've been so successful uh, at defending teams uh, in the paint is Lopez, is, his discipline is incredible in the paint. He just stay, He's always in the right spot, and he's, to, he's really a, an elite shot blocker as well, and he allows Giannis to be that roaming guy who can come over the top uh, of Lopez, and we saw that a couple of times last night in just, just ridiculous fashion where Lopez is out on the floor, uh, the player gets past Lopez. He thinks he's got an easy layup, and Giannis comes soaring over the top and swats it into the 15th row. So uh, the, the the Bucks do really lose something if if Lopez is played off the floor. But 
you know, that's going to be something that, that Mike Budenholzer and, and the coaching staff are going to have to work through because uh, there really hasn't been too many situations this year where you thought that Lopez uh, would be off the floor early in the season. This was a really major talking point. What happens when you get to the playoffs and Lopez can't play? I think a lot of those concerns have been uh, quelled through the season just because of how good defensively Lopez has been. So this is going to be the challenge and it's, it's going to be something to watch. Uh, I think the sample size that we have through the season tells me that the Bucks are going to be able to play Lopez and work through that. But if they can't, then that's when the Celtics really can get a hold of this series. Yeah, I would agree with all that. I think, I honestly, at this point in the in the series and I guess postseason and the season, I was going to say, but I almost think about Lopez's defense first. All he adds there, defending right. the rim. I mean, his offensive contributions are great, but you know, if he goes zero for five, the Bucks can usually survive. I mean, it hurts, but you know, it's that's not his main contribution. I mean, on offense, his spacing is still there, even if his shots aren't necessarily falling. I mean. Teams do not feel that they can leave him wide open, which opens up more room for everyone else. But defensively, I think he's been essential in what he does against teams' main units. And honestly, I mean, I, I remember the statistic was shared. I don't remember exactly by who. I mean, he was one of the, if not the best, bigs defending guards on the perimeter. I mean, Kyrie is a guy who obviously, you know, you don't want to have Lopez matched up on a lot. But I think most of the other perimeter players for the Celtics, I really don't mind if, if they drive against Lopez in a little bit of open space. I mean, it's just – it's something he's shown all season. He can handle that kind of thing f- from time to time. Yeah, again, he's just – he's the discipline to uh, contest a shot without fouling, even if he doesn't get the block shot, just generally is, is forcing opposition players into really difficult shots and uncomfortable shots and, and uncomfortable uh, positions in the on the floor for them. So – Again, Kyrie is one of the absolute elite, but you know potentially the best ball handler in the league. He probably is. Uh, you know that he's going to get into. Uh, he's got a floater, so he can pull up. He can shoot the mid range, but he can do so many things. So we're talking about a guy that uh, you know is on another level to uh, let's let's say Reggie Jackson, who we've seen in the, in the last series. But uh, you're right, Lopez has proved all season, and this is a big thing about when you look at how well Bledsoe has done against elite point guards, uh, a lot of the credit has to go to Bledsoe. He's incredible at getting over screens. He's incredible about, uh, you know, uh, bodying up, uh, again, his defender and, and letting him know that he's there without fouling. He's, again, himself has been very disciplined. But a big part of why the Bucks have had great success is Lopez and Giannis. It's the it's the three-headed monster of the Bucks' defense uh, in those pick-and-roll situations that allows them to be so well. So, they're the, they're the two key guys, and we haven't even touched on, on any of the other weapons for the, for the Celtics yet. Uh, we've still got a few days before the series starts, so we're going to get on those. But is there any other you know early, early thoughts that you have on this series that you wanted to touch on? I think we're going to see a lot of screen action with Giannis and guards at the top of the key if Lopez is on him, just to try and get a better matchup. Because I think, I think Giannis can score on literally anyone, but I, I do agree with what a lot of people are saying. Lopez is one of the better guys to sort of handle him one-on-one. I mean, he's always drawn those tough assignments, it feels like, for most of his career going all the way back to Atlanta. But I, I don't think he would shut down Giannis. But I think, you know, if you get more situations with, like, Marcus Morris or Jason Tatum on Giannis, you like that a lot better for the Bucks. So I, I would not surprise me to see a lot of screens. Um, honestly, I don't know. I mean, just this, this – this, this Horford thing is stressful. This second round talk is stressful. Playing good teams. We're not used to it. And we know life can be stressful. But getting life insurance shouldn't be. And that's why there's ethos. 
Ethos is a modern kind of life insurance that's super fast, incredibly affordable, and very uncomplicated. Unlike this series, which is, as you can tell, already pretty complicated. At GetEthos.com, there are no medical exams for policies covering under a million dollars. No hours of paperwork or meetings with pushy representatives. It only takes 10 minutes to apply, and you can rest assured knowing you've taken steps to protect your family. And in most cases with Ethos, you can have that peace of mind for less than a cup of coffee a day with zero hidden fees. Having life insurance can free you from stress. Getting life insurance shouldn't cause it. Discover how uncomplicated life insurance can be at Ethos. Get your free instant quote and submit your complete application in minutes. Just go to getethos.com. That's E-T-H-O-S, getethos.com. One more time for the true Ethos fans, getethos.com. Uh, just honestly, every time, it just leaves me uh, leaves me speechless. That one was a buzzer beater. It was close. I know. I actually thought you weren't gonna I thought we weren't getting there today. We're already at thirty eight minutes and we had to get there. I mean it's not it's not a go we gotta we gotta put food on the table here. Yeah, we do. It's a fact. But uh, I guess as we look to wrap up this pod, uh, and again, I did say that we are most likely going to have one uh, again before the series and just for the listeners, Ty, uh, we we're not sure whether you're gonna you got work commitments which uh, later in the week, so maybe you might not be around for this one. But if you aren't, or even if you are, we're going to look at having a guest for the first time mm. on the Euro step. Uh, we understand that me and Ty are very uh, pro-bucks in, in our analysis, so if we can get an outsider in, we're going to try and balance that out a little bit and, and try something new with a guest. But uh, I think really what I want to do right now is get our predictions on the table for the series and get them down uh on paper so we know where we're standing so do you have an early prediction and by the way we do not know where game when game one is going to be we are still waiting maybe by the time you guys uh listen to this podcast the uh schedule will be out i think i'm expecting it's going to be out tonight after some of these games finish so it is uh tuesday night right now so we will see i anticipate it's going to be a saturday or sunday when this thing gets kicked off but what's your prediction what are you thinking it's really tough i think uh i mean i feel like the series is gonna end in milwaukee i think that's where the bucks i think the bucks are gonna win first and i think it's gonna end in milwaukee and i'm really torn between between five or seven and I'm gonna say, you know what? I don't. I think. I mean, we. Marcus Smart has been running on a treadmill. That, that was a uh, the other side of the injury. The injured guards. There's one in both series, but it, I, I don't know if it's a smokescreen or what. It doesn't sound like he's gonna be able to play at least most of this series still. Yeah, I feel like this is. I feel like this is saying a lot, but I'm gonna say Bucks in five. Yeah, so that's interesting. So this is. This is where I'm at with this series. Obviously, the Bucks have game one and two in Milwaukee. So the way I look at this series, if the Bucks win game one and two and hold home court, then my prediction is the same as yours. I think the Bucks win in five. I think they steal one uh, on the road, and then they come home and, and finish the job in game five. So it all comes down to these first two games. And look, maybe the Bucks don't win the first two games and maybe there's a split. And then I think you're looking at a six or seven game series if the Bucks can't take the first two. But I, I just think if the Bucks hold home court, which we know that they've played so well at, at Fiserv Forum all year, I think if they win game two, I think this thing is done quickly. 
Yeah, I agree. I just think then all the pressure's on Boston. You just got to take one of those road games, either one, and then you know you can clinch this thing back at Fiserv, back in the friendly confines of Fiserv Forum, which we know you more than I, but even I know is going to be raucous. So it's exciting stuff. Oh, it is, and, and shout-out to the Bucks fans, actually. I don't know how many of the listeners were at Fiserv last night. I was not. I was there on Saturday night. Uh, but, man, they were out there in numbers. And last night, I know there ended up being a storm. I think I think they probably got through the game without too much rain. I don't know. I was I was inside. But uh, certainly, um, you know, with some storms on the way, they got out there in numbers and watched the, uh, the Bucks clinch their first series since 2001. So, they, I mean, that area around the arena and now with, with, you know, the bars are open there and the beer garden out there. I mean, each game that this goes on for the Bucks, it's only going to get uh, more packed out there, uh, more exciting out there. And I think, you know, even though uh, game one and two in Milwaukee, there will still be people out there watching. But I think come three, game three of this series, that is good. That, that's going to be insane out there. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uplifting to see, you know, the – the city is has its best basketball team and I mean I'll just say quite a while. At, at least eighteen years. I would posit longer than that, honestly. But it's uh it's exciting to see that, you know, this is uh not being ignored or, or missed by by the Bucks fans in the city of Milwaukee and the state and I mean shouts to all our Bucks fans across the world too. I know uh like yourself a lot uh, international outside of the state, outside of the country and you know, everyone gets to, to celebrate right now uh, going into this series. I mean, it's going to be hard fought, but I think we both feel like this is just another step on uh, what should be a long playoff push. Yeah, we, we've spoke about it all year, and in the end, the Bucks did it. They got through uh, with less fanfare than we expected, but uh, it was just business as usual for Milwaukee, and now they get to move on to uh, you know, a team that beat them last season, and I, I don't – this is something I've spoken about multiple times just from talking to the players through the season – they don't forget last year, and they don't even forget the year before against Toronto. Giannis certainly holds a grudge. Chris Middleton holds a grudge. Eric Bledsoe has got a, a point to prove from last year. So uh, I don't think the the possibility of a letdown for game one is even on the cards. This team is ready to go. They're feeling good. They're starting to get healthy. Uh, they're in a really good spot uh, heading into game one against Boston. So uh, as I said, we, we, we've got a bit of a – you know, a gap here before game one, both Boston and Milwaukee just took care of business and wrapped up their series so quickly. Uh, have you got any last thoughts before we call it quits on Tuesday evening? I'm just thrilled to see what Giannis and company are going to do against, uh, I mean, no, I mean, some shade of Detroit, but not trying to go be excessive, but a more capable opponent. I mean, it's, I, I wouldn't say the real playoffs start now, but I would say the, uh, the, the difficulty Degree of difficulty is going to be ratcheted up, and I can't wait to see how these Bucks respond. Absolutely, uh, they they came back to Milwaukee last night to a bunch of fans at uh, at, at the Mitchell Airport. So everyone's excited. We are excited. Things are you know we now we feel like the playoffs are really going to begin, and this is going to be some really high pressure basketball. So as I said, we will be back uh, before Game One at some point. We will. Uh, have another episode out there and just just continue to preview this series that uh, for Bucks fans feels like it's been 12 months in the making. But Ty, thanks for coming on as usual and we will uh, speak to you uh, very soon. Absolutely. Thank you, Kane. Thanks to everyone for listening. Check us out 
the rest of the episode, subscribe, rate, review, tell your friends, put a message in a bottle and throw it in Lake Michigan. Whatever it takes, get the word out about the Eurostep. 